Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 26th episode of the Bad Motor GP show. Oh, I'm happy to welcome Jack again. After the Zipang tests, uh, we discussed a lot, and uh, we would like to follow this up from uh, from the Portimao test. So uh, you enjoyed Portimao. You've been there a couple of times now. So how how does how's the experience from inside the paddock in Portimao? Yeah, very good. First, cheers for having us on again. Um, Portimao's pretty cool place. Like not just the track, the whole area and paddock and and everything around it really cool it was nice being at the test it was a little bit of a quiet test i have to say like there wasn't uh there wasn't like any kind of big changes obviously like the big thing on the last day was fabio suddenly finding a load of speed and all that sort of stuff but no it was an enjoyable experience anyway uh, a fairly quiet test but a good one so i've been to portimao in 2021 for the second race oh yeah where Pedro won the world championship Mm -hmm. and I enjoyed the track I thought they made some made a great place for motorcycle racing there but the organization was so incredibly terrible it was really uh, annoying because you had to go to the city to get a parking ticket Mm -hmm. then go back to the track and in the city there was a huge traffic jam because of this I don't know why they couldn't just let us in then you weren't allowed to bring food or drinks into uh, the circuit area. And yeah, we we were there basically alone on the uh, grandstands mm. at turn one. Mm-hmm. So there were not a lot of fans. But still, there were people uh, running around telling us that we have to uh, wear masks. Where like in a realistically, like in a 10 meter radius, there were no people. And we are obviously on fresh air. And yeah, in... Um, yeah on the track outside so it was a little bit ridiculous in some points but Portimao is a beautiful track and I feel like with a better organization it's it's a great weekend to attend yeah for sure I mean I've never been uh, for a race weekend to Portimao the only actual racing I've seen at Portimao was when uh, myself and Elliot York went for uh, it was 2020 uh, CV back then uh, when we did some commentary for that mm. um, so yeah I can't comment on the on the organization i'm sure that obviously your experience i imagine if you had it and some other people had it as well but yeah um in terms of the track and everything it's probably one of the best tracks in the world to be honest for like a spectacle to watch bikes go around it's pretty impressive yeah so let's jump right into it with uh, ducati and let's start with peko we briefly talked a little bit uh, about the engine problems uh, ducati faced uh, last season it's it's weird to talk about problems because they're so dominant but yeah. it's still i guess a problem to them um so maybe give a quick summary on what was the issue with the engine and uh what does peko now mean when he said the bike suits his style better than the previous gp 21.5 yeah so to summarize the problem really quickly basically we we uh we thought that the problem was to do with corner exit and traction uh and that initial like kind of roll on the throttle we thought that maybe it was a little bit too aggressive um uh, too hard hitting and it was causing problems with the rear wheel then spinning and pretty much once it starts spinning they lose traction and drive all the way out the corner and then obviously that translates to to top speed as well uh, which has never been a problem for ducati but anyway a problem in the middle of the corner so we think that was the problem Tardotti then said that over the Portimao test, they might have fixed the problem, but we'll come on to that. Um, I don't 
yeah, not too sure if they have fixed it or they just got a better feeling with it. Uh, in terms of Peko saying that the bike is suited around his style, I think this is where kind of this like very soft and calm, gentle character that Peko is, we kind of underestimate the inside. He's still a motorcycle racer and he's a little bit of a demon. Um, I think he's used his position of power and Ducati very wisely to make sure that they essentially now tailor the bike not all the way to him, but at least like his comments are going to be looked at first more than anything else. So I think there's that element now where we've seen Peko has been quite clever to make sure that he's got the upper hand going into the year. So uh, in terms of how the new bike suits his style, uh, not too sure, because to be honest, when you watch Peko and Anea ride on the bikes, um, they do look quite similar. And also we hear all the time that they're, they have a very similar kind of data to each other. They don't do too many things that are too different. We know that Peko is pretty strong on the brakes compared to most people. So maybe it's something to do with braking performance or whatever, but I'm not too sure on that, to be honest. So Peko said to Ducati that he wanted more of an evolution and not a revolution on the GP 21.5 he was riding. And uh, I guess he got his wish because there weren't a lot of components to test. It was just basically what I've heard that things uh, were brought to the track which already are proven to be working and which are more of an evolution because he doesn't like to test a lot of things. He just wants to get to grips with the new bike, I guess, right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think the, the big example of that was obviously last year when Peko's head essentially got fried because he was just trying too many different combinations of parts and, you know, changing the bike all the time, um, which is incidentally what's kind of happening with Mark at the minute, although not to the same degree. Um, yeah, so I think like any sort of stability you can give Peko is always going to help him, which I think is like the whole point about you know, it's, it's intertwined to everything, bike development, his teammate, all this sort of stuff. You know, he was quite happy having Jack as a teammate. And then all of a sudden he's got a Naya who's going to be a different kettle of fish. Uh, and it's just whether it's going to upset him or not. But as we've seen, they've kept a lot of stability around him throughout the preseason, not changed the bike too much, just small tweaks to make it better. And I mean, this is the first time he's going to come into a season where he's ready to win the opening race. Uh, he's never had that. So it's pretty ominous, to be honest, the form that he's in already. Yeah, I guess with Inea, there's a lot of conflict potential, but I don't feel like it's there yet because Peko is the clear number one, literally. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Inea has to prove that he's uh, he's the real championship contender. Uh, and I feel like after a couple of races, maybe there's uh, a shift of power. But honestly, with the sprint races, I don't think that they're suiting Inea's style. I think they're suiting Peckle's style more, so this would be an advantage to Peckle. And right now, if he can keep his head in the right place and take a third place when he needs to, take a fifth place when he needs to, and not crash in like he did in Qatar or like he did in in Le Mans in P2, you know, as long as he keeps his head in the right place, I feel like there's nobody who can beat him and therefore there's no real conflict potential there you know yeah there's definitely that sort of thing i think as you say as long as he keeps his head in the right place then he's going to be okay um it is going to be very interesting to see how it plays out because you're 100 right there's massive potential for a conflict if it does 
you know, that whole thing, like someone starts playing with his head, AKA Ene Bastianini. Um, I got to say, I do think at some point there's going to be some tensions that quickly arise because I just don't see any way that these two, who are both so good and both have kind of different ways of doing it, I don't see how there's not going to be any tension at some point, particularly when they're fighting for race wins. And as we get later into the season, if they're both still in the championship hunt, then it's just going to happen, I think. Um, but yeah, the, the sprint race thing is is quite interesting as well because obviously, as you say, you think it's probably going to suit Peko a bit more than Enea. We know what is like late in the race. He comes on really strong. So then it's like, well, is it really that much of a benefit being amazing in the sprint? You know, if you can be in the sprint, just be solid and pick up third and fourth places, you know, it's going to be a lot less damaging than being third or fourth in the main race the next day because you'll lose less points. So it's interesting, you know, being very good in the sprint might not actually be the best way to go and win the championship. Yeah, but Peko is not bad in a real race, you know. He's not bad it's in not a real like race. This is his weakness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not bad it's in a not, real race either. But we'll yeah, see. It's not like he's Jack Miller, where he's notorious for um, using up the rear tire and always having like a good first half and then a bad second half. Peko is pretty solid all around the race. He is. Yeah, he is. Um, yeah. Which is going to make him hard to beat. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. And with Enea, um, has he done a sprint race simulation? And if he did, how did it went? Yeah, he did a sprint simulation. Um, I can't remember specifically what the lap times were now, but they were like roughly a tenth to maybe three tenths off what um, Banyaya was doing. But Enea was pretty open with us, uh, particularly on the first day that he was missing um, something compared to Enea. And I think he said Marini or did he say Martin? I can't remember. One or two. Um, so yeah, Enea still got some things to find. And I think that's where it's like the clever thing that Peko's done, where he's made sure that Ducati mold this bike around him. And so it's just going to take Enea a little bit longer to get up to that very, very top level. He's not far off. Like he's going to be there or thereabouts. But um, coming into round one, at least, the favorite out of the two of them is Peko by far. How's the adaptation going from the GP21 to the GP23 for Enea? Yeah, okay. Um, he's largely said that obviously like it still feels like the same bike, essentially. There's obviously some big differences with new engine and you know uh, changes in whatever else, weight distribution and all that, that the Catty have done in the past two years. But largely it's, it's the same thing. He rides it in the same way. There's just some small nuances that he has to figure out now with the engine and stuff like that. Um, yeah, not much of a problem, like not much of a huge adaptation to do. He's just got to learn some new things, really. That's about it. Okay. And uh, the big story of the Portimao test was a little bit Alex Marquez. Yeah. Because uh, he has been very, very good. And he's also been good in the previous tests. But when you look at his results over the last years in Portimao, he's always been good at the track. He uh, put a shitbox of a Honda in the top six or top five last year, yeah. I believe. And um, is it a case of Alex Marcus is now a real contender where he's on a bike? Or is it just, uh, I mean, contender for podiums, contender maybe for victory like Inea did last year? Or is it a case of he's just good around Portimao and has a lot to learn on a track which isn't his favorite track? 
Um, I think it's definitely more of a case that he's just a good rider in general. It's not just a Portimao thing. Obviously, uh, you say about Portimao, I think it was probably his best performance last year, wasn't it? Uh, that race in Portimao, where he, I think he crossed the line just behind Mark. Um, yeah, like he actually looks pretty solid. I mean, well, it's stupid to say he looks pretty solid. He's a, he's a two-time world champion and we all know he's pretty good. Um but yeah, I think he's going to be like in the contention for for podiums all throughout the year. To be honest, um, not on a massively consistent basis. I don't think. I think there's too many guys that are better than Alex that will be in that podium fight all the time. But for sure, Alex will turn up to races and he'll be, you know, maybe the the second best or third best Ducati out there. And if you're second or third best Ducati, it means you're pretty much going to be roughly fighting for the podium so um yeah he'll he'll be good he'll pick up a, a handful of podiums this year for sure um i think if he doesn't he'll be disappointed um uh not just himself but the team and, and ducati as well because i think they expect it from him even though obviously like they're being quite tight-lipped about expectations of his first year on the bike but you know they signed him for a reason and he's there to replace an a bassinini and bassinini won four races last year so they're going to expect some sort of silverware this year at least yeah, he was talking down a lot of the expectations, which is, I would say, usually a good sign because uh, riders tend to be frustrated when something isn't going well. And when things are going well, they they don't like to brag about it, especially like in a test. But um, when you see somebody like Alex Marcus playing down all the expectations, I would say it's usually a good sign. And... Um, What's interesting to me, did he say something about what's the process like of adapting from the Honda to the Ducati and what exactly are those main differences he has to relearn? Um, he didn't really go into specifics about kind of the process of adapting. He just obviously said the usual stuff like, you know, adapting and going well and have some things to learn. Um, I think the biggest thing though is because obviously he's going from you know, a V4 to a V4, he's just hopped on it and he already has that V4 riding style, but he's hopped on it and realized, oh, wow, like, you know, the way that I would like to ride, I can't actually do that here. Um, I know that one thing that he found particular uh, when he hopped on the Ducati was how much corner speed he could carry um, compared to what he was on on Honda last year. So that was one thing where I think he's probably uh, not really had to learn it, um, but he's gone, okay, I can carry more here. And then like, if I do that, then what do I need to change after that? Um, yeah, Alex is always quite, he's a good one to interview because he does actually tell you how he's feeling, but he doesn't really tell you the specifics of what's going on. He's still like a little bit PR friendly in that sort of way. Um, but no, um, yeah, in terms of his adaptation from Honda to Ducati, I think mainly he just hopped on it and went, okay, this bike actually does what? I ask it to. And obviously there are Ducatis on the grid and it would take a lot of time to discuss everybody in depth, but I would like to run through a couple of names real quick. We talked about uh, Luca Marini, mm -hmm. who um, compared to the last two tests, I don't want to say it was disappointing to see him not on top, but yeah. uh, you know, you know where I'm going? Yeah. Um, how is his state? Is he uh, as happy as he was after Zipang or is there something up with him? 
No, I think he's absolutely fine. Um, I mean, I, I said to him after the second, after the first day, sorry, and put him at work because he was fastest on the first day, I think, wasn't he? Um, or second fastest, something like that. He was up there. Uh, and I said to him, oh, you could do the, the hat trick and top all the, the season tests from Valencia to here. And, you know, he kind of laughed about it and said, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like, we'll, we'll give it a go. But uh, he's not going to be that bothered. You know, he was... Where did he end up? I can't remember specifically where he ended up, but he was like top six or seven, wasn't he? Something like that. Um, but no, I think he's just as happy as he was after Sepang, um, especially more so now because he's done his uh, sprint simulations and kind of longer runs, and he knows exactly where he lies, at least in Portimao, compared to uh, mainly compared to Peko and Denea. He knows that he's really not far off Peko's pace in the sprint simulation at all. So I think, um, as we said about it last time, you asked me if I think he's going to win a race. I don't think he'll win a long race, but I do think he could win a sprint for sure at some point. Um, and yeah, Portimao, he's got a great opportunity. He just needs to make sure he, he qualifies well. I still believe he has some massive potential to upset a lot of people yeah. because he's on the same bike he was last year. He's He can use the same setups. I don't know if anything with the tires changed uh, from last year to this year, but basically everything's the same for him. And uh, therefore, I believe he has a lot of uh, upside this season. Yeah, he definitely does. Um, that stability is, is nice to have. Uh, in terms of the same settings, I imagine he's probably not quite using the same settings. I would hope that he's um, found something that works a little bit better than what he was doing last year anyway. But um, yeah. It's the same thing. It was like Anea coming into Qatar last year. It was like he was the only one on the first two rows that was on like a proven bike that you knew could win races. So you knew he was going to be okay because they know how it reacts over race distance. Um, and it's the same thing with Luca coming in this year and also guys like Marco Bezzecchi and, and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, yeah, Luca's, Luca's going to be good. I mean, if he's not on the podium in the sprint, I'd be surprised. What has uh, Jorge Martin said about the new Ducati? Um, specifically, he said uh, the new engine was a big improvement on the full 22 spec that he ran last year uh, and that it breaks a lot better. Um, he said as well, I think it was him. I can't remember now. I think he said that he found something to do with the rear Um an electronic setting that allowed him or helped him with the rear end. So I can't remember specifics. Um, just trying to remember what they said when they came for interview. But to be honest, I mean, like, you know, there's so many people at the minute that think Jorge seems like quite a, uh, I don't want to say reformed character, but he's got like another purpose this year, it seems like. Um, I don't know. I think he's just learnt from last year from the pressure that he had and he's kind of he's a, a definitely gonna stir up the pot this year a little bit with the factory ducatis um we were chatting about him earlier me and jack appiat were chatting um jack thinks he's a pretty good outside bet well not even an outside bet but a, a good bet for the championship um i don't know if he'll put it together for a full season but i think he's definitely going to make them sweat at, at times I mean, he has to kind of qualify for the Yamaha factory seat. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I guess he will do better this season because last season was, for a rider of his capabilities, a bit disappointing. 
Yeah. But uh, yeah, let's talk about Yamaha because they have a lot of problems uh, or had a lot of problems to solve in Protimao mm -hmm. because after uh, Malaysia, they weren't happy at all. And especially uh, with the one lap pace, have they fixed it and how did they? So, um, Frank, uh, sorry, Fabio's fixed it. Frankie hasn't. I, well, uh, I think first Frankie needs to just in general find something that he likes with the bike uh, more than what he has at the minute. Um, yeah, but f so what they say after Port after Sepang, they obviously said, you know, like we were struggling for one lap pace and couldn't figure it out at all. And it was all like bizarre and bewildering as to where this pace went. Um, then Fabio on the first day was doing a lot of run with like the big kind of double stacked uh, wings on the front. Um, and he was changing loads of stuff to do with like front setup, like suspension high. And he said he was changing like fork springs and all this sort of stuff. Um, so they were obviously like searching for something drastic that they were really struggling to find. And we now know that it was the, the one lap pace still. They solved it in the end, or at least Fabio solved it in the end by they switched back to the full 2022 aero package. So Uh, the main wings and also the side pod wings further down. And then they also went back to some old 2022 settings. Uh, we don't know if that's like literally what Fabio finished the year on in Valencia or something earlier than that. We've no idea. But all of a sudden he was a lot happier. So essentially what they have is like full 22 bike, or Fabio does anyway, full 22 bike with the 22 chassis, 22 aero, and then just the 23 engine. Um so yeah, you would from that you would presume that they're still going to have like the front end issue that they've had, but at least he's going to be quicker in a straight line. So I don't know. It's it's an interesting one, but it made for a, a pretty massive step for Fabio at least anyway. Like when whatever run it was where he figured it out and they found the setting that he liked, he was I don't know, he went like half a second quicker than he had done all test. So um yeah whatever that setting is they need to keep that as the base and work from there really how big is the difference between the setting of a qualifying setup and the setting of a race setup so how big are the differences between uh going for one lap pace and going for 22 laps or whatever uh in terms of the setup like suspension and all that it won't be much different at all um They, um, I'm not too sure because I'm not like a, a, a MotoGP engineer or anything or a mechanic. Um, I imagine they might change some small things. Maybe they change tire pressure slightly because they only have to push for a certain amount of time. Uh, but I imagine even with that, they might not because they might just leave it at what they're happy with. Um, I think the biggest thing would just be they'll obviously give them like the the full electronics package that they can have. So like. Uh, they'll give them the full power map, essentially, rather than a map that they would have in the race, which takes a little bit of power away from the engine. Um, they'll probably allow them a little more slip at the rear wheel because there's like a certain amount of spin that you can have for optimal traction out of the corner. Um, so, yeah, it would just be largely electronic changes compared to the race rather than physical ones like setup or suspension height and stuff like that. Okay, so basically when Fabio is happy with the one lap pace, we can assume he will be happy with the race pace. I mean, he was already happy with his, his race pace, pretty much. Um, he said after Sepang that their pace on old tires was like not so bad. Um, 
and his his pace actually was pretty good. Like even though he was doing slower lap times in Sepang, his best lap times were done on tires that were like kind of 13, 14 laps old. Um, and yeah, he confirmed that again here in Portimao. He said after the first day that his his pace felt okay. And then when he did his sprint simulation, actually, uh, which was quite a good tell for the fact that they'd made a step with one lap pace anyway, because the sprints here in the one lap paces are only about half a second difference. Uh, his sprint simulation was pretty close to what Peko's was. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think now that Fabio has that one lap pace sorted and unlocked, at least here in Portimao, anyway, we'll see how he goes at other tracks in the first half of the year. Um, yeah, they're going to have to watch out for him pretty closely because he's going to be there. With the arrow. It's a little bit strange to me because when you bring all the 23 parts um, to a track and nothing seems to work, it feels like there's a a problem going on, you know? And um, they had, both Yamahas had a pretty bad Zipang test Mm -hmm. from the time's perspective. And uh, Fabio obviously uh, made a huge step in Portimao. So... Is this just the case of the Yamaha not developing except for the engine? Or is it a case of Frankie couldn't translate what he found in Malaysia compared to Quattarao uh, to Portimao? Where would you sort um, this? It's, I don't think it's a, a case of Yamaha not developing. Um, maybe it's a case of that they've well, they've obviously developed, but they've they've not found the kind of smoking gun that they want. They haven't found the the key to the next step. Um, I think your Frankie thing is in in Sepang. Obviously, like Fabio couldn't find his one lap pace. So what you were seeing there was uh, their relation, their relative like kind of free practice. Uh, sorry, race simulation times essentially, which usually Frankie in the race can do. Some lap times are fairly close to what Fabio has done, but then it's throughout the race where he starts to fall off and uh, and lose the lap time compared to Fabio. So I don't think it's too much of a change. I think the big disparity from how close they were in Sepang to how big of a gap there is now in after Portimao, I think is purely just because Fabio's figured out how to do one lap pace again. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. The thing with the arrow is obviously like, how many different arrows did they bring? They're at one, two. They had like four different variations of new aero. So it's not like they're not giving it a go. They definitely are giving it a go. Maybe they don't quite have the know-how of of teams like Ducati and Aprilia in terms of aero. Um, but it's kind of not much of an excuse, you know, like they just need to catch up and figure it out. Like they're starting behind you know, a couple of years in terms of the era development game compared to the Catty and Aprilia, but they just need to figure it out. I think more of it is because of the Yamaha works in a very different way to how the Ducati and all the V4s do, that kind of the aero style that works for them maybe just doesn't work so well for the Yamaha. And then that's what you're finding now with, you know, them trying higher downforce aeros and, you know, they're not sure on them if they're a step better or not or if they're causing problems. So. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting, really. I don't think it's a case that Yamaha just aren't developing. I think they're just trying to go with what they see from other manufacturers and maybe it doesn't work for their bike. 
maybe I phrased it a little bit uh, more, let's say, aggressive towards Yamaha because obviously they are developing. Obviously, yeah. they just pulled my headphones out. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, obviously, they are developing and obviously they brought a lot of different uh, parts to the track, but none of them seemed to work yeah. except for the engine. And they went back to the 22 bike. So in the background, they are developing, but what ends up being used in a race is basically the same as last year. So um, I also feel like Yamaha... Yamaha's situation looks a lot worse because there are eight Ducatis mm. on the grid. Mm -hmm. If there were just four Ducatis, I feel like they would have uh, a lot less problems. And um, with the Aero thing, it's pretty strange to me when they have those um, those 23 Aero packages where they have like the KTM style mm -hmm. um, Aero where there are those big squares and they have the Aero which... Um, which seemed to work uh, good for Kyle Crutchlow in Zipang, which was like the more flat mm -hmm. arrow. And do you have an understanding on what exactly those arrow packages uh, didn't bring to the bike and therefore Yamaha is using the old arrow? And what's like the weakness of the new arrow? And we don't know the specifics of what they liked and disliked, really. Um we know that obviously like the big KTM style one is obviously going to add a lot more downforce. Uh, and one problem that's going to give for them is in the corners, it's it's going to make the front feel a little bit heavier and a little bit more pressured, but it's also going to change um, how heavy the bike feels and change the direction. Uh, and the Yamaha already with the way that the inline four works is a little bit more stable on change of direction. It's a little bit heavier to, to move over side to side. So maybe that's where like you come to a track like Portimao where it's a lot of like short, sharp direction changes. And all of a sudden you find that, you know, it's not helping the bike, it's hindering. Um, uh, so that could be one thing with the big area that they didn't like. Um, the other thing, so you say about the crush low one with like the kind of two just flat panes sticking out, um, it's going to create a little bit less downforce, obviously. I don't know if it would create less downforce than the 22 aero, but it's, I don't know. It's, I'm not an aerodynamicist, so no idea. But in terms of what the benefits of that and the negatives of that one are compared to the 22, really, we don't really know too much. Um, they're pretty tight-lipped on <laughs> how it helps and how it doesn't help. So, yeah, in terms of that, uh, I can't answer that one. Sorry. So nothing changed since Malaysia with uh, Yamaha and their their willingness to speak to the media about their problems? In terms of the specifics, no. We know uh, the general problems, but not the, you know, what they actually feel on the bike. So, One big headline was the, you phrased it, the Corsa spoiler, uh, the Opel, <laughs> Opel yeah. Corsa spoiler on Twitter. <laughs> and uh, I kind of uh, took inspiration from that for a meme. So first of all, thank you very much. I you're, thought it was hilarious. You're welcome. <laughs> and uh, I hope you aren't too mad at me <laughs> for stealing <laughs> yeah, it. Not at all. Um, yeah. But what's up with the causal spoiler anyways? Because it looked ridiculous and they didn't want, or they said they don't want to use it for the season. But what was the purpose of it? And yeah, what's the reason behind using it? Um I think what the purpose is, I'm not too sure. I think my theory on it is that it's more of a 
experiment than everything else. Like it's it wasn't ever a serious part that they would actually run race weekend to race weekend. Um, we know that Yamaha uh, occasionally have this tendency to really struggle with rear grip, uh, particularly when track conditions are low grip. Um, it's actually something I didn't ask in Portimao. I was going to ask the riders if there was good grip out there or not. Um, anyway, but yeah, I mean, if you look at a spoiler like that, the <laughs> I mean, it looks bloody ridiculous. Uh, but the you would say that when the rider's on the bike, he's obviously going to feel like quite a, a heavy difference. Um, we did ask Fabio that, and he said actually like it wasn't that bad. Like he could feel it, but you know, whatever, it wasn't a huge change. But I think the biggest thing is that when they're in the middle of the corner and then coming out of the corner, it's obviously going to where it's going to apply some pressure and help. So you wonder if it's like a experiment for Yamaha to look at uh, almost like a weight distribution experiment to know that if they have significantly more weight on the rear coming out the corner, is it going to help them with rear grip? Um, I'm sure there's maybe some engineers out there that uh, might be listening and think I'm chatting a load of shite. I might, I might well be, you never know. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's all I can see it for. I don't think it was ever a serious error experiment that they were going to actually run on the bike. I think it was more just to see what happens if we have X amount of downforce pushing down on the rear out of the corner. Does it help us? And then for the future, does that give us an indication that, okay, we need more, more weight at the rear of the bike? What do you think? How high is the probability that a rider, let's say Fabio and Frankie, see the spoiler, say to themselves, it's absolutely ridiculous, it's so ugly, <laughs> and therefore subconsciously, when they test it, think it's it's stupid anyways? Uh, yeah, it's possible. It's possible. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> one, <laughs> one thing that, uh, like my, my dad... Um, used to work for a team in British Supersport in 600s and occasionally we go testing with the guys at, at Cabo Park which is like near where I'm from back in the UK um we go testing with them at Cabo Park and sometimes we give the rider like uh just to see what they're you know how good they are at feeling a change on the bike we'd say oh by the way like we've, we've changed this on the on the engine brake map or something you should feel more uh, more engine braking here or something like that and maybe it'll be the opposite of actually what the engine brake map does And we'll try test them to see if they actually come in and be like, what the fuck? Like, this doesn't feel anything like you told me. And sometimes you'll get them come in like that. And sometimes it'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think there's that like always subconscious thing is if you tell someone, you know, what you expect, then they're going to feel that. So there's definitely possibility there that they look at it and go, bloody hell, that's not very nice. And then they just out there on track don't like it, you know. Um, but I think in reality, particularly with Fabio and Frankie at the level they're at, Uh, I think if they feel it's better for the bike and they can go faster with it, then I don't think they really give much of a crap about what it looks like. They'll they'll have it. They're going to the bike like this and then yeah. go faster. Yeah, looking the other way until they actually can't see it. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you think that this type of shit testing also happens in MotoGP in testing? Uh, what in terms of? whether the riders can feel differences. Telling the riders something and doing the opposite and see how how they uh, uh, how well they know the bike or how well they can uh, recognize those I, things. I wouldn't think so. Like whenever we used to do it, we always used to tell the riders afterwards. And it was like a, it was an exercise for them to actually 
learn, you know, because there were young riders trying to make their way in motorcycle racing. But I think as you get to MotoGP now, it's all it's all business, and you've got a there's no real place for messing about like that. So maybe in Moto Two or in Moto Three. Yeah, maybe Moto Three. Yeah, with the young lads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, Yamaha brought the Stegosaurus Arrow last year. <laughs> yeah. And obviously now that with this Corsa spoiler, um, do you know the difference on how they work? Because obviously the Corsa spoiler, I think it's pretty obvious to guess how it works. The air comes over the bike and presses the rear down. Yeah. But with their Stegosaurus, it's a little bit um, unclearer. So do you know how exactly this works and why are they going away from it? Um. Why they're going away from it is an interesting one to me, actually. I thought about this at the weekend because when Fabio tried the Stegosaurus wings, the big bloody things that Yamaha had, they were massive compared to Ducati and, and everyone else. Uh, Fabio was actually like, yeah, yeah, I can feel them. And he, and he said like he liked them. Um, so that was quite interesting that I thought they'd appear again either in Sepang or in in um, Portimao, but they never did, obviously. And now we see this Corsa spoiler. As you say, the Corsa spoiler... At least it looks pretty simple. Like it's going to work when they coming through the corner and as they come out the corner specifically. Um, not so much on the brakes because the rider will pop up and kind of block it behind. Uh, but yeah, the I think the the two main theories with the Stegosaurus ones are um, braking stability. So when they're actually on the brakes, somehow they they create braking stability. I'm not too sure. Um, but then the more obvious thing is that when they get into the middle of the corner, as the rider leans off the bike, it kind of exposes it. And when that bike is leant over, they sit pretty like perpendicular with the ground. Okay, we are back. I'm sorry we had a little <laughs> bit of a connection issue. I don't know if it was on my side or if it was on your side, Jack, but uh, we seem to figure it out. And uh, yeah, you were talking about the Yamaha Aero at the uh, rear end of the bike with the Stegosaurus and the benefits of uh, it compared to the Corsa spoiler. Yeah, uh, I f I'll just cover everything again. I can't remember where I'm stopped because I was waffling too much. Um, anyway, yeah, so the, the Corsa one is like, it seems fairly simple in terms of that it's it should just help when they're coming through the corner and, and coming out of the corner. Uh, maybe not so much on the brakes because the rider will pop up and kind of get in the way. Uh, but then the Stegosaurus one was pretty interesting because obviously Fabio quite liked it when he tried it in Valencia, but it hasn't appeared again since. Um, the theories are that it's for braking stability. So there's something to do with as they kind of start to tip into the corner um, the way that the two sides of the wings are on the back uh, are angled, it helps with braking stability. Uh, but the more obvious thing, I think, is that when they're in the middle of the corner and the rider leans and it kind of gets out of the way of the air flowing directly to that spoiler at the back because it'll be parallel with the ground, uh, <clears throat> it should create just a small amount of downforce there just to help with... with uh, not necessarily grip, but just creating a more secure feeling, I guess, at the back. Um, so, yeah, it should be really in the middle of the corner where that helps. Um, so in terms of whether Yamaha were just messing around with both ideas, I, I guess it seems like they were now. But um, we'll see if they make any changes off the back of that in the future. 
Aerodynamics on a motorcycle are so incredibly fascinating yet strange to me yeah. because like on a car, you basically have to um, have to put the aerodynamics in a way that the airflow is distributed on the car in a way you like. But on a motorcycle, you have going uh, going straight, you have going into right-hand corners, left-hand corners, flipping the bike. And as you said, with the KTM-style aero Yamaha was running, that it maybe made the bike a little bit heavy. And what you just said with the Stegosaurus, for example, if you are on the right-hand corner and therefore you make way for, I don't know if it's the left part of the wing or the right part of the wing, which mm -hmm. would create the downforce. But on the flip side, the other side would kind of create a little bit of an upforce in a way, you know? Yeah, I, I guess so, I'd have to have a look at a picture of yeah. how the angles are, but yeah. you would think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's pretty strange. And I would love to talk about it with uh, somebody who actually understands aerodynamics yeah. on a motorcycle because it's such an incredibly important topic. And um, yeah, I would like to go to Honda because they are in a deep shithole as well. And they, <laughs> they seem to be all in on the Stegosaurus. But it seems like all of the other aero is, it's not Honda's uh, strong point. So how much do you think does Honda's lack of aero development cost them in comparison to Ducati or Aprilia? Uh, oh, tough question. Um, that's tricky to answer how much it costs them in terms of like, you know, like how far behind they are in developing their own. And then they've obviously just now everything they have is essentially a copy of either Ducati or Aprilia. Uh, I think the best way to answer that is the Ducati is essentially still the same fundamental bike as like 2019 or 2020, roughly. Um, the chassis is the same. The engine is still the same firing order. Of course, it's had tweaks now and, and all that every year to make it smoother and better power and all that sort of stuff. But the, the bike is essentially the same. The big thing that Ducati did to make their bike better and all this sort of stuff is, is aero. Like, uh, it's like when Mark had his uh, battle with Peko uh, in Aragon in 2021 and he said it was like battling Dovi but with more corner speed that's essentially like what the Ducati is now it's essentially the same bike as Dovi rode in 2019 and 2020 until he he left Ducati um, but yeah it just turns better um, it has more grip in the middle of the corner uh, they can be more gentle and more stable with the throttle in the middle of the corner because it doesn't uh, it doesn't slide anymore. It has better traction. The, the engine is less aggressive. So really, in terms of like the fundamentals of the bike, it's their big improvement in the last couple of years has come from aero. So I think that's the best way to answer that. You know, Ducati have taken a V4 so far in terms of the characteristics they want, and now they're just forcing it to work with all the aero stuff. And Honda obviously isn't competitive right now and honda hasn't been competitive for a long long time except mark marcus mark marcus always kind of made a, a step which no other honda rider could take and mark marcus was always able to let's say put half a second on every other honda rider because he was so damn fast 
And during those tests in Portimao, he was, uh, yeah, a little bit behind of, um, uh, yeah, Joan Mir and Alex Rins. And I can't remember if he was ahead or behind Taka, to be honest. But, um, yeah, but it, it would seem like a bad thing if the number one rider who's been there for 10 years is behind two guys who just came over from Suzuki. And I don't like to, uh, to put too much into a testing session because at the end of the day, it's just testing and not racing. And I still believe that Mark Marcus will be the best Honda at almost every track. Mm -hmm. And still the question comes up, what was up with Mark during the test? I don't think there was too much up with Mark. Um, I think more the, uh, it's just a, a thing that he was testing lots and lots of different things again for Honda. Um, he said after the first day in his interview that it was like essentially his first two days in Sepang where he was just trying lots of different setups and variations of, of the same bike. So he was never allowed to really kind of just stick with a bike and go and go and go and develop. Um, so I think the first day you can at least put down to all of that. The second day was much less complicated for Mark again. Like they kind of, um, he had his two bikes and he just worked on things. They were still trying quite a, a few different things, like different aero and, and, and such like that and different, very different geometry setups. But it was much more that they had just allowed him to go for it. Um, I think in the end, I actually just got the page up. He did actually finish behind, behind Joanne in the end, but the, essentially the same time. Uh, they were about a hundredth off each other. So it's interesting. As you say, Mark is usually head and shoulders above the rest in terms of outright lap time and then always in the races. He's he's far ahead of them. Uh, a test day, like if Mark's behind or ahead, I wouldn't really pay too much attention to it. I think the bigger thing out of it, the fact that Joan had the same lap time as him, is just that if that's the level of the Honda at the minute um, and Joan is genuinely like, being being able to put in similar lap times to Mark, or at least close to. Um, I think Mark probably had a few more attempts left in him if he really went for a, a proper lap. Um, then it just shows how good of a job Joan is, is doing in his transition over from Suzuki. So I wouldn't be too worried about Mark. Like, I wouldn't read too much into him. I know, obviously, he's not the same rider as he was before. And I think everyone kind of wonders what's going to happen with Mark in the next few years. Is he going to slowly kind of dwindle down or is he going to still be this ridiculous rider as he always has been um so yeah i, I wouldn't pay too much attention but it's definitely worth noting that joan was similar pace to it after malaysia you said that joan mia came uh, from the suzuki to the honda and said everything was different yeah. And Alex Rins basically said, I can ride uh, the same way and I just have to adjust a few things uh, with the setup. And But how did this narrative uh, change or stay the same during the Portimao test? I was actually speaking to Simon about this uh, on second day. I can't remember. One of the days at the Portimao test. Um, because when Alex and Joanne, yeah, it must be the second day, when Alex and Joanne came for their first interview at the end of the first day, it was like the same narrative again. Like, Joanne had a really difficult day on the first day, said that, like, he really struggled with the feeling of the bike and uh, all these sorts of problems. Um, but then Alex came in and, like, he was kind of 
happy and you know said it was like his best day on the bike yeah and was able to ride really well and his lap time that day was okay i think um so yeah it's really weird like they obviously for both of them everything has changed there's that's just the fact like they've gone from a inline four to a v4 but yeah it's just two completely different ways to go about it it's so strange honestly um yeah, I, I can't quite wrap my head around it. And I said to Simon about it, and he didn't really know what to make of it either because it's just you'd expect them to be identical and say that, you know, they had to change the style and all this sort of stuff. And Alex is literally like, yeah, no, I can ride similar way, just change some small things, and that's it. So, yeah, very odd. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very intrigued to see how it plays out between those two this year. It's strange to me too, because uh, before the season, and we talked about it after Malaysia, my opinion on it uh, would be that Sean Mir, who's like naturally a more aggressive rider, we talked about his Model 2 days, and we talked about the way he has to kind, kind of tame his ridings or had to tame his riding style to suit a Suzuki, mm -hmm. um, that this more aggressive style, in my opinion, I thought would suit the Honda more than Alex Rin's super smooth style. So, but you said that nowadays the smooth riding style is important to manage the rear tire. And um, yeah, therefore, it's still strange to me that Alex Rins is the one who's feeling, like, let's say, more at home than uh, Joan Mir. But um, what, do you, what do you make of it like in terms of the season? Is Alex Rins more competitive because he's happier right now? Or is Juan Mir more competitive uh, over the season because he will eventually adapt to the Honda better as soon as he got into, uh, onto grips with the bike, you know? Yeah, tricky question. Um, you would naturally think that once Joan gets to a point with a bike that he's quite happy, he's going to have a higher ceiling than Alex. But I, people underestimate Alex a lot. He's an incredible rider. Like, genuinely, so many people underestimate him. Um, and I think I do a little bit at times as well. Uh, I don't know. Like, I'm honestly really intrigued to see over the full season who comes out on top between those two. Um, my... I'm go sorry. On. No, no go I'm on. sorry. I didn't want to interrupt you. I thought he was finished. No, no, go on. On you go. Okay. In my opinion, Alex Rins is the better rider. Just he has this habit of crashing too much while Joan Mir. I said once that Joan Mir, if he would work in a normal job, he would be an insurance salesman because he's <laughs> like pretty average, but he's consistently like if Joan Mir was a position, he would be P6. It's not bad, but it's not like <laughs> glorious, you know? Yeah, yeah. But he has the world titles. He has a Model 3 world title. He has a Model GP world title. And do you think that, let's say, hypothetically, Alex Rins won the MotoGP title in 2020 and not Joan Mir, do you think that he would have gotten the Repsol Honda seat? Absolutely. Yeah? So yeah. you think it's just because of the world title and not because the rider is better? I think it having that world title just naturally... Uh, It just gives a rider more standing, obviously. They're a world champion in MotoGP. Like you can't get a, a more prestigious title than that. Um, yeah, I, I think absolutely. And I think for a number of reasons. Uh, one, because he would have had that uh, title as world title, as world champion, sorry. Um, two, 
Alex really in the last two seasons has got the better of Joanne, hasn't he? Like obviously Joanne last year had uh, a crash and was out for a while, but also like the amount of times where like for sure on the Suzuki, Joanne got out qualified by Alex far more than Alex, uh, far more than Joanne out qualified Alex. Um, and even in races, like if you think to the early part of 2022, I think for the first three races, they, I think Alex beat him um, when they were both riding really well uh, and the Suzuki was performing well. Um, yeah, I've, it's a bit of a parallel universe question, isn't it? But I think that if he had won that world title in 2020 instead of Joanne, I think Rins for sure would have got the reps for Honda seat. To me, at the beginning of last season, Alex Rins was a clear favorite for the title. Obviously, before Jerez, the big news came out that uh, Suzuki yeah. will withdraw, and it it messed up both uh, rider seasons. You know, mm -hmm. uh, they, Joan Mir started to crash like four times in a row, which was very, very unusual for him. Yeah. Alex Rins kind of lost his way where he was at the beginning of the season, super, super strong, and then it felt like once he settled in once he knew what his future is going to be like, then he started to be good again. And with Alex, I believe if you take out the crashing, he's the better rider, but obviously crashing is a part of racing and it will be interesting to see how he adapts on Honda. Because I remember Mark saying once, once you have to test the limit of the Honda to know the limit of the Honda and therefore you have to crash a lot. But um, yeah, it's going to be very interesting on how different the approaches of these two or the, let's say, the characteristics of these two, which is a little bit odd. I, I would expect a rider like Juan, who's more aggressive on a bike, to be the one who crashes more. Mm -hmm. But Juan is very consistent if not his job is in danger, you know, like last year, which, as, a, as I said, was a bit of a strange period of time during the beginning slash middle of the season. And uh, Alex Renz, who's like the more smoother rider, tended to crash a lot. But as soon as Suzuki gave him the bike, which he wanted with more horsepower, he didn't have to override the bike anymore and suddenly stopped crashing, you know. And yeah, that's like, it's a weird combination of the riding styles and those habits, let's say. Yeah. But I still believe that Alex Renz is the better rider at the end of the day. Yeah. Tricky. I mean, personally, I, f I think that Joan has a better, uh, a higher ceiling, like he can reach a higher level. Um, whether that's like a general bias thing from the fact that Joan is a world champion and Alex is not, like, and that comes back to your point about who would have got the ride. Uh, maybe it is, but I don't know. It's just tricky. It's so tricky to figure out. And as I say, like, I can't, if you ask me now who I think is going to finish higher in the standings at the end of the year, I'd probably say Joanne, but I really wouldn't be surprised if Alex finishes higher. It would be nice to see him on the exactly the same bike because I remember Alex Rins saying that it's not the same bike. Not quite. Yeah, there's a couple of differences with the chassis, but um, yeah. I imagine that the, well, hopefully soon they will have uh, the same chassis here. Yeah. Yeah, And I would disagree with you on the point that Joanne Mir has the highest ceiling because I feel like Alex Rins has a higher ceiling, but he always has a lower floor 
With mm -hmm. him, you get either like those incredible performances in Valencia, you get those races in Aragon or yeah. in Phillip Island or in Austin where he beat Valentino Rossi. You know, you get these rarely from John Muir. One mm -hmm. time was in Valencia where he won, but yeah. his floor is a lot higher where you don't see him usually crashing out five to six times in 10 races. You know, he yeah. always gets the points home. So, in this case, I would disagree because I feel like Joan Mir is like more consistent, but not as fast. But Alex Rins is super fast, but needs to uh, get his consistency right. And if things aren't going as well, I feel like Joan Mir is the one who gets more out of it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I largely agree with, with everything, you know, but yeah, just interesting in it it's just that small difference that we both think oh no i think galax is going to be yeah. better or has better and i think sure it's as i say like between those two it's an extremely close matchup i imagine yeah. that like everyone out there is the same as me and you kind of they either think one or the other and it's very close between the two of them yeah a lot of if buts and maybes exactly but yeah there was a interesting story today you uh you reposted it on twitter yeah and uh, everybody who doesn't uh, know you can uh, check out speed week they reported on carlex building a chassis for honda mm. and i've been a moto gp for a while moto gp fan for a while now and at a certain age let's say 15 16 i started reading news about uh, moto gp and over the years, I collected some kind of data that leads me to say, I don't believe a thing Speedweek, especially Gunther Wiesinger, is reporting because it turned out to be bullshit so many times. And also, like Gunther Wiesinger, I, I don't know if he's German or if he's uh, from Austria, yeah, sure. but um, the way he writes is not like a journalist would write. I don't know how the translation in English works, but it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty provoc provocating. Provocative. Yeah, provocative, that's the word. Um, and like, like an amateur journalist would write, uh, trying to get a reaction out of his, out of his readers and trying to make the big headlines without actually doing the proper research. That's, that's the vibe I'm getting. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, therefore, I don't take Speedweek seriously as long as I don't have a second source confirming it. But it's still a great topic to discuss. And uh, since you reposted it, I wanted to <laughs> ask you what's... Uh, maybe you're the second source. <laughs> um, no, what's what's the deal behind the whole story that Honda says, uh, goes to Kallax and says, hey, I would like yeah. you to develop a chassis for me. Um, I'll say about Speedweek actually, because uh, I think they were the first to report that Honda was going to a Calyx swing arm, uh, and obviously we know that all happens. So yeah, I'm sure they've got things right and wrong in the past, like everyone. Um, what I've heard, I'm sorry to interrupt you. What no, I've heard that they have good connections to Red Bull, right. and everything they report on Red Bull related topics is uh -huh. pretty accurate because mm -hmm. they have a lot of inside information, but. As I said, there were a lot of stories over the years where Speedweek reported absolute bullshit. And I'm not saying everything they say is bullshit. Yeah, yeah, it's just yeah. that I don't believe it as long as I don't see it confirmed from a different yeah. uh, source. I mean, I think that's a good policy on any any uh, out there, you know. Um, but in terms of the story anyway, so 
the story for anyone that's uh, not seen it yet, you can go to Speedweek um, and you can find the article. I'll just, I imagine that most MotoGP journalists have, have tweeted about it today. Um, so the story is that apparently there's an order in that Honda have asked Calyx to build them a MotoGP chassis. Uh, Calyx have never built a MotoGP chassis, but obviously they have years and years and years of experience dominating Moto2 building chassis. Uh, and swing arms for that championship. And we obviously know that Calyx is the, the go-to bike in Moto2 is the benchmark. Um, so, yeah, the, the idea of them building a full entire chassis is really interesting just to see what they can improve on. Obviously, you know that if they're going to do it, they're going to take Honda's chassis and like study the data on them and their flex characteristics and the strength uh, of them and density and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then apply it to what they know and see like, oh, okay, we have different numbers here for this area and this equation and all that sort of stuff, all the technical stuff that I don't know about, stress calculations and, and all that. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting to see like if they actually do it. And the, the story says that apparently the deadline for it, or at least when it's meant to arrive, is the Spanish GP and particularly the test after the Spanish GP. Um which is massive. I mean, if they can, obviously, we don't really know when the order went in. I think there was some talk in the article about it, like towards the end of last year, that it was maybe the idea was was put into motion. Uh, but still, like building a full-on MotoGP chassis for the Honda RC213V in that time frame is tight, like really tight. Uh, so, yeah, it's crazy. And like this level of outsourcing, not just... Is it not something we don't really see in MotoGP, but particularly from Honda, it's pretty radical change. Like Honda pride themselves and always have done on that they do everything in-house. Like they used to, you know, run show a suspension in MotoGP before everyone started using Olins, and then they changed to Olins as well. Um, used to run their own brakes, Nissin, then changed to Brembo's when everyone started using Brembo's. Um, you know, so like there's always this, been this ethos as Honda of like, you know, we are experts in motorcycle engineering. We don't need to outsource. But as I said about like the Calyx swing arm before, it's not like a show of weakness or anything from Honda. It's just an admittance that, okay, we kind of need to actually really figure out how to make this whole thing better. So, yeah, I don't know. Like if they do it, it'd be fascinating because you know that every single person in that paddock will be listening in on Mark Marquez and join Ms. Debrief. Um, and you know, the, what they said about the swing arm was that they couldn't find any, they had no negatives was I think Takanakagami's quote when he first tried it at the Mizano test last year. So if imagine the same thing happens with the chassis, obviously it's a lot more difficult to get a chassis, right? But you know, if all of a sudden Honda have this new chassis and it improves certain areas, then it's kind of game on for Mark Marquez, which would be very spicy, but yeah, we'll see. How desperate are you, Honda? Yes. <laughs> yeah, there, there's definitely that. I mean, you would be though. Honda, you know, the whole phrase from their founder was without racing, there is no Honda and you go racing to win. So, and they hadn't done any of that in a long time. So yeah, they need to hope that if they are doing this Calyx chassis, they better hope it works. What do you think? How well does the data and everything 
Kallax is doing in Moto2, because obviously they had the Honda engine there, but it was an inline four. Yeah. Now they have the Triumph engine. How well does this data translate to MotoGP? Obviously with a different engine, with different electronics, and obviously with aero packages. Now, how how capable is Kallax even to develop it with no no, I don't want to insult them that they aren't capable of doing it, but I feel like it's a fair question to somebody who isn't able to, or who never did anything apart from Moto2, and they had a brief period in Moto3 where I had the Kallax KTM, but it wasn't competitive as well compared to the real KTM. Yeah. So how capable is Kallax even of doing this, especially in such a short time frame? I think now with the experience they have in Moto2 and the way that they've dominated and how much data they've collected, I think they're extremely capable. Obviously, as you say, and good point to point out that, you know, in the past, all they've done is inline engines, obviously with the four and then the, the Triumph triple now. Um, so, yeah, it's a very different kettle of fish to go and build a chassis for a V4. But what Calix will have, which is so valuable is just mountains and mountains of data and knowing that this you know like say any given point on the chassis they can say okay what are we seeing here from the stress calculations and flex characteristics and all this sort of stuff and they can at least apply that knowledge to then uh build a chassis and they can kind of build a chassis for this honda uh based solely if they wanted to on kind of you know, we know that these numbers are good for this characteristic from the riders out on track. So let's try replicate that. But then obviously there are loads of problems with, okay, what you, what you, the riders want and what that translates to in terms of the numbers and data from a Triumph 765 chassis will be very different to what the riders will want and how it translates to numbers and data from a Honda V4. So yeah, there's, I think they're very, very capable to do it. Like, no no doubts about it. But it's the question of, is it going to be as good as it needs to be? That's that's the thing. What, I, what I've been thinking uh, right now is maybe Honda isn't expecting Kallax to develop a chassis for them, which they would use. Maybe they're just expecting somebody to look on their chassis or give like an outside perspective on their problems yeah. and then working with those experience and kind of molding it together, you know? Yeah, that could be it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, if they do that, it's a brilliant idea because, you know, having someone come in and like peer review your work essentially is, is always a brilliant idea. Um, and particularly a, a manufacturer like Calix, which have won so many Moto2 titles, have so much data and experience. Not saying that Honda don't have the titles and data and experience, but quite clearly right now, what they are doing is not working. So it's always a good idea to get someone else in to have a look. Yeah, so maybe we will talk after the test in Jerez again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A test we review. Yeah, if that chassis appears, <laughs> then yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I would like to uh, quickly run through Aprilia and KTM. Sure. I um, don't feel like there's too much to discuss there, but Aprilia brought a new engine uh, to the test. Obviously, uh, in after well, Zipang, we discussed the whole engine thing, and now they brought the new engine, right? No, they didn't actually, which no? caught oh me caught me off guard when I asked um, Aleish at the end of the first day because all we heard from Aprilia was, you know, they'll have a new engine, they'll bring it to 
Portimao test and and I asked Aleish at the end of the first day I was like we know we've got the new engine here so how was it and he went oh no actually we won't have it until the first GP so there you go uh but they have told us uh religiously that the new engine is not a massive change it's just some more horsepower so it should be like a you know whatever they've tested now it should be able to just put the new engine in and it doesn't drastically change the bike you know it's not like they have to then go and alter settings to to make it work better but the engine regulations say that you can't change the engine specs during the season there are no engine updates ex uh, except you're uh, you have those concessions which apple yeah uh, lose last year yeah so it's still let's say a little bit of a risk to go into a season with an engine you've never tested on a real model gp bike on a, with your model gp riders well we yes with your real model gp riders for sure but we do know that sava Savadori will have done plenty of miles with that that engine all throughout his development process. So the fact that Aprilia are confident enough to say, oh, we'll just bring this engine to round one, I think it shows that they've done all the dyno work, they've done the testing work with Savadori on track, and they're very, very happy that it's going to be bulletproof and, and good to go. So, yeah, there's there's like a, a little niggling thought in the back of the head of like, well, is this actually going to be okay? But I think we don't really have to worry too much about seeing a... Uh, brilliant throw a fucking a, uh, a con rod out of the case in the in the first free practice do you know the reason behind them bringing uh the old engine to the test not sure i presume well a brilliant smelly a fairly small factory i presume it's just that they uh, don't have enough units of the new engine yet so i guess they're still just producing them that'd be my best guess that's unfortunate yeah yeah But, but they should be fine. We'll see. Yeah. But I feel like they have a bigger problem right now with Aleish because he underwent uh, surgery for arm mm. pump. And he said that the new error will uh, or would have uh, been the cause for his arm pump, that it provides presumably too much downforce and too much stress on the body, that his bones or his muscles rather can't handle it properly. So uh, do you know how his operation went and uh, if it's still a, a concern for Aprilia? Um, I don't think it's going to be too much of a concern. The surgery that Aleish had is a fairly like kind of standard one for motorcycle races. Um, the, he did mention about the increased downforce of the, of the new aero and um, that it's slightly heavier, shall we say. Uh, but that's not like the, the cause. The cause was the crash. Obviously, the the um, riding the bike with the new aero made it so that he got the arm pump quite badly. But now that they've done that surgery, I don't think he should have too much of a problem in the future. Um, but the obviously the the usual thing is that it is a concern that obviously he's had surgery now on his arm and those small wounds that they've had to make to go into the, the fascia around the muscle on the arm. Uh, they do still have to heal. Uh, who was it that had it last year? Someone had it last year and then rode Fabio like... Fabio had it? Who had it? Ah, oh, Fabio. Fabio. It was, wasn't it? Was that last year or two years ago? Oh, that's a good question. But I remember, I believe it was after Le Mans. It was, But it could it? have been 2021 as well. I'm not sure. Maybe. But anyway, Fabio had it, didn't he? And, you know, like, uh, Fabio had no problems. He said it was a little bit painful. But you think back to, like, I think Crutchlow had it done... Uh, 2019 or 2020 and when he was riding the bike the stitches on his forearm 
they burst they they uh, just burst open so um yeah there's obviously that but he should be okay because he has was he still has like a week to go until until he has to be on track but the concern is still that they kind of lost two days of testing because of it yeah they kind of lost two days of testing not quite like obviously he was still out on track as we know but um yeah they, they, there were some things in the program that they couldn't do because the lace just couldn't do the laps so it's definitely a small concern but i think the fact the obviously all the aprilias were fairly quick obviously strangely maverick wasn't towards the top of the timesheets at the end of the test but uh, he wasn't too worried about it because his like, pace was pretty good and he was largely happy. So, yeah, a small concern, definitely. They they won't be entirely happy that they still had stuff on their uh, items list to do. But um, I think Aprilia are uh, at least kind of like 90%, 95% ready to go. How happy were Miguel Oliveira and Rolf Fernandez after the test? Yeah, pretty happy. Yeah. Um, I mean, Miguel's always like quite realistic and subdued anyway. Uh, but no, he was he was pretty happy. He was saying in his uh, debrief for the journalists in the media centre that he has top five pace. So um, if Miguel is, you know, outright saying that to the media, then you know that he really, really feels he's got it. So, uh, yeah. Miguel was pretty happy and Raul was, was very happy as well. Raul was particularly happy after the second day because Aprilia brought some like small electronic changes um, to help him out. And I think he said it helped with the, the rear grip of the bike quite a lot. So, yeah. And they've been coming from uh, KTM. So the contrast is uh, pretty big. <laughs> yeah, the contrast is quite large. Yeah. 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 So uh, talking about KTM, they brought a new engine as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and not, not necessarily to the Portimao test, but for the 2023 season, they have a new engine. Yes. And from my understanding, it's not like a evolution; it's a real change to uh, to the engine. And yeah. the same with the aero package. Obviously, it's much more visible. But uh, with the engine, I've heard that it sounds completely different. It does, yeah. So, uh, is something up with the firing order, or what's the reason behind it? Yeah, I, I, we would guess that the the firing order has changed. I mean, when you you know you listen to the bike out there, usually when you hear a different tone of the bike, it's all due to the firing order. Um, yeah, the KTM was kind of the last uh, almost kind of screamer. It wasn't a proper screamer firing order. It was still a big bang, but it had a bit more of a, a high pitched tone than the rest of them. It was the most distinct engine out there, and now it sounds <clears throat> still has that distinct KTM tone. Uh, but it sounds a lot more like the rest. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so, yeah, it's a little bit of a deeper sound. They actually had it first in Sepang and then now in Portimao, all the riders have had it. We know that Miller really liked it in Sepang, but then I think he said that there was like a couple of things I needed to work on. So I don't know if KTM went away and made some small changes or whether they just did some stuff for the electronics to make the engine work better. But, uh, yeah, new engine for KTM and... Um, I guess it seems to have helped because uh, I think they're all going to use it. So, Remy said to me that uh, the KTM he was riding last year definitely wasn't the factory KTM. That it they always say it's like uh, that Tech Three gets factory support, but uh, Remy said is it wasn't the factory bike he was riding. 
And um, which brings me to the question, is Pole getting real full factory support now? Yeah, looks like it. Both the gas gas guys. Um, at least looking from the outside, the bikes are all identical, you know. Now, particularly as well, that they've put Augusto on kind of the full 2023 spec, because before they were just leaving him to, to kind of ride what he has. Uh, yeah, all four bikes are identical. They've all got the brand new aero. They've all got the brand new engine. Um, so, yeah, it does seem that way. We'll obviously see as it goes throughout the year. Uh, you know, I imagine that at least Brad's going to be the, the leading light. Um, we'll see who kind of comes out second between Paul and Miller. Um, but, yeah, you would imagine that obviously then Brad will get those updates through the year before everyone else. And then I imagine fairly quickly they'll trickle down to the other guys. Okay, I would like to uh, go through some Q&As. I believe we have like eight minutes left before you have to go. Uh, we lost a little bit of time because of our technical difficulties. <laughs> But uh, yeah, let's uh, let's make them quick. Let's make it quick and dirty. And um, <laughs> one question is, uh, how did uh, you get into the job? We answered this after Zipang. I don't uh, think we have to discuss this again. But um, the second part of the question is rather interesting to me, which is uh, what would you recommend to someone trying to work there, uh, cool. trying to work for Dorna slash MotoGP? Uh, yeah, tricky industry to get into. Um, yeah, what would I recommend? Uh, one good way is to reach out to people on LinkedIn. Uh People reach out to me on LinkedIn every now and then asking if there are opportunities at Dorna or do I know of anything? And it's a great way to do it, um, you know, just to make your name known. Like, I mean, for us personally, I can tell you that whenever we kind of have a job going at Dorna, um, we always have like people that we didn't offer the job or at least didn't get the job in the end. We always have their, their CVs and names still on file anyway. Um, so it's always a good thing to have because maybe in the future, if there's a new job that comes up and we think, ah, this person could be good, uh, then it's always an idea that we can contact that person in the future. Um, so, yeah, biggest thing is just follow people in the industry. Um, make sure you follow your journalists. Make sure that if you are looking to get into work, you know, make it known to people um, and try to message people that you think would be able to help you, you know. Um, not saying that I'm a brilliant one to message because I myself don't have a massive amount of contacts in the industry. But, you know, if you were to message me or someone that, I don't know, works at BT Sport or something like that, um, it's always a good way just to make sure that your face is known or your name is known at least. Um, so, yeah, that's a good thing. Um, also, it's not a bad idea to start a podcast. <laughs> if you want visibility so that people know who you are in an industry and you enjoy talking about motorbikes and you enjoy talking about MotoGP. Honestly, so many people get jobs off the back of starting podcasts now, you know, if you can pick up a little bit of a following. So not a bad idea. Let's see how this one goes because uh, the current state of uh, my podcast slash my oh, page is... We got connection issues again. Oh no. And I was about to tell a little story where I was uh, asking a rider if he wanted to do a podcast. Oh, yeah. And, uh, the rider was uh, willing to do it, but his manager said uh, he isn't uh, allowed to do it because uh, his manager thinks that being associated with me and my meme page isn't mm. good for the rider's career. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's, 
which is funny because you have the allowance from uh, you're allowed from Donna to uh, to do it. So yeah, but um, going on to the next question, I don't want to uh, stretch out your time limit uh, too much. That's all right. Don't <laughs> but, worry. Um, yeah. There were a lot of questions uh, about Honda. Like, mm -hmm. have Honda made some progress? Is Honda capable of uh, capable of winning? How desperate is Honda? And um, let's boil it down uh, to the uh, to the question: Is there any hope for Honda? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, <laughs> but it's hard to see at the minute, isn't it? Uh, I'll just. Yeah, the bike is better than last year. It's definitely better. It's not, you know, a million times better. Like, it's not all of a sudden this really good bike. It's still a little bit of a handful and a bit of a pig. Um, but it's, it's definitely a little bit better. So there's kind of, like, hope that way that, okay, they have made a step. And I think as well there's, you know, if you can look at the path that Ducati have gone on in the last, like, 10 years. I know, obviously, 10 years is a bloody long time frame. But... You know, there's no reason why Honda can't do the same and kind of, you know, go from really, really struggling to all of a sudden being right at the top again. And I mean, particularly, you know, it's an interesting thing, as we say about the Cali chassis. If that does happen, like whether it's they build a whole chassis for them or it's just personnel from Calix coming in to help, if at least something positive comes out of that, then, yeah, there's, there's definitely hope. But I think the biggest hope comes from the fact that now there is no excuse in kind of Honda's rider lineup. You know, that's the really good thing now you know you have a couple of guys well four guys that know how a MotoGP bike should should feel so um yeah I, I think there's definitely hope like the step this year and also just their rider lineup I feel like it's still a development year for Honda obviously but yeah I believe Marcus will win in Austin he will win in the in Germany probably and yeah It, there is a possibility where Mark Marquez goes into the um, or comes back from the Argentina uh, USA races as the leader of the championship. So I don't think any hope is lost. I think Mark Marquez will pull a rabbit out of his head a couple <laughs> of times in during the season. But I don't think at the end of the day it, uh, it will be enough to to win the championship. And that's basically the only thing he wants so yeah yeah exactly yeah and um there's another question which is very very interesting to me and it's uh what do you think the next big development of the bikes will be like writer devices like wings or let's go back and let's say electronics you know uh i don't know um It's interesting because you wonder, like, you know, what can they actually do next? They're already using aerodynamics. They're already changing ride height device actively on track. Obviously not electronically, but pushing buttons to do it. Uh, I don't know. Like, there's so many things in motorcycle racing that they're not allowed to do. Like, same as in F1 now. Like, they're not allowed um, electronics electronically controlled suspension and all that sort of stuff like same for us in MotoGP like that would be a big thing electronically controlled suspension but in the current rules it's not allowed to, to be done uh, in terms of the next big development I'm really not sure to be honest really not sure um, at the minute they're kind of doing everything that they at least that I can foresee they can do in terms of like 
general topics of, of what they could do. But I'm sure that in the next three, four, five years, there'll be some crazy development that they, they can do. I mean, who would have thought that right height devices would be a thing five years ago? Yeah, right. You know, like, you know, I can't think of where a ride height device would have even been used in the past in racing. Yeah. Um, you know, it's obviously a known fact that if you kind of can lower your center of gravity, then you reduce stuff like wheelie and all that. But in terms of other motorcycle racing, it's not been seen in terms of even car racing. You know, there's been some clever stuff in the past, particularly in kind of project cars that aren't legal in any racing series where they can load up suspension to reduce drag and all that sort of shit. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe active aerodynamics if that's ever allowed, but I imagine yeah. that won't be allowed because of because of um, cost. Yeah, my opinion would be to get rid of aerodynamics like step by step because I feel like when you go when you see a MotoGP bike nowadays, the Aprilia is like the best example right now. Um, and you say, okay, let's strip down every aerodynamic part on the side fairing that you only have the ones at the front, those wings, but you are not allowed to use ground effect. You're not allowed to use rear wings and yeah. have like one wing per side on the uh, on the front fairing would be a good step. Basically mm -hmm. going back to 2016 with like Yamaha comes to mind where they had those big wings at the front and yeah. those right height device because at the end of the day you want close racing and I would wish that there was more effort putting into making racing close again yeah but uh yeah i i would have said uh, active aerodynamics as well also in formula one i feel like this could be a huge possibility but mm -hmm. uh, obviously the regulations would have to change and it's still yes. a cost factor because costs would go through the roof to trying to program the aerodynamics and all of this you know exactly yeah 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 and last question before i let you go is uh will ktm season be as difficult as what the test suggests if i knew the answer to that question i would be a millionaire by now uh <laughs> uh, uh yes in short i think so um i think you'll still see flashes of brilliance from brad binder particularly And I do think that Paul and Miller will have really, really good rides at times, um, particularly when we go to tracks where that KTM just seems to work and they can qualify on, on the first couple of rows if they can. That's the other thing. KTM have usually been a bit naff in the old qualifying department. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, in a nutshell, yeah, I think their season is going to be a bit of a headache. Um, we were talking about this the other day, like, and I even asked Simon, like, I was like, uh, At what point do KTM just say, okay, we need to explore building an aluminium chassis? But it's not that simple. You know, you look at Honda, they have an aluminium chassis V4 and they're in the fucking mud as well. So, yeah, I don't know. But I, I think historically that KTM has always suffered. It's had better years than others for sure. And it definitely has racetracks where it's really, really good. Um, but yeah, I think i can't see how their season is a roaring success but i can just see it being a bit of a struggle again during the last episode we talked about ktm as well and i would repeat myself because i went into depth why i don't trust ktm they have a good bike in like three to five races every year but they struggle to get consistency the steel frame is not as competitive as an aluminium frame 
maybe Honda is the worst example at the time to uh, to <laughs> compare uh, aluminium frame. Let's say Ducati does it pretty well. Yeah. And um, KTM, they had all the data from Calex during the Zarco days in Moto2, tried to build a Moto2 bike, and the Moto2 bike had the same issues that it was good sometimes like three to five races maybe in moto 2 a bit more but it wasn't consistent it was unpredictable and the same thing with the moto gp bike and also i don't believe that they will change from a steel frame to a to a aluminium frame because yeah. they would admit that their bread and butter which they sell on every road bike would be wrong it's like yes, yamaha exactly. going to a v4 it's not gonna happen because yeah yeah i agree their way of building bikes and they would admit that their way is wrong and therefore going back to uh going yeah going back to a, a aluminium frame would be not a smart move marketing wise yes and uh, ducati did the right thing in 2013 14 15 whatever when they went from the monocoque to the aluminium and said this is bullshit we will do this and now they're reaping the rewards but i don't think ktm will do it no i agree entirely like if if they do it they're accepting as you say that they they were wrong essentially their philosophy isn't as good as, as something else um and it's it's interesting we'll see if it does work eventually someday um you know obviously the bike is it's still bloody fast motor gp bike like it works really really well it just doesn't work as well as what it needs to um so yeah uh, very interesting but yeah as, as you say if they do change then it's just like you know what were they doing all these years they should have changed earlier yeah okay thank, uh, thank you very much for joining me i will let you go after like two delays of technical <laughs> issues i'm sorry no that worries it's it longer it happens and uh yeah i'm very excited for the season will you uh make more after the flex stuff during the season uh, i won't so much my role is largely now based in the office in barcelona um but i'll still appear every now and then at a couple of gps but probably not an after flag unless it's at a, a test so okay yeah i will look forward to uh seeing you then that the Jerez test is the first one right uh yeah hopefully we'll see yeah. it's not yeah. confirmed yet but we'll see so yeah, I'm hoping that uh, you will get the opportunity to shine again because I feel like you're you're making a good job there, and uh, hopefully the eye will be uh, not bothering you the next time. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know that was a problem. If someone yeah. saw me crying on after the flag, I fucking honestly, as soon as they went, oh hi Jack, yeah, nice to see you down at Yamaha, I, eyelash went right into my eye, and it was I was just like ah oh, shit. So I looked like a bloody idiot for two minutes trying to blink it out, but. <laughs> shit happens so okay yeah anyway. it's not as bad as uh simon explaining everything uh from the starting <laughs> procedure and people not being able to hear a thing because the engines were uh too loud so yeah. yeah yeah okay thank you very much uh i hope you have a great evening and thank you so much for doing it i enjoyed our conversation as uh as well as the last one and uh, i hope to talk to you soon thank you very much and goodbye thank you for having me on cheers